Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hamelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome my guest, Dr. Tristan Brandhorst. He's a senior research scientist at the Klein Lab at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, Wisconsin. He holds a PhD in biochemistry, and he has been the leader of an investigation on the toxicity of the commonly used fungicide fludoxanol, researching its mechanism of toxicity and effects on off-target organisms. Dr. Brantorst has been studying the physiology of pathogenic fungi for 20 years with research into fungal metabolites, toxicity factors, and mechanisms of virulence. His research group stumbled upon evidence that this particular fungicide did not work by its widely accepted quote-unquote safe mechanism and has published his findings that this particular fungicide acts on a sugar metabolizing enzyme common to all cells. Dr. Brandhorst's research indicates that the complexity of pesticide effects on cells and enzymes in the body and organisms generally are not understood to the extent that they should be. He recently spoke at the Beyond Pesticides Annual Forum, and his presentation will be available through that nonprofit organization. And the disclaimer is that I serve on the board of Beyond Pesticides. Welcome, Dr. Brandhorst. It's an honor to have you with us. Uh, thank you, Melinda. It's great to be here. I want to know what got you interested in biochemistry. Well, I suppose I'd have to say I'm, I've never understood why more people aren't interested in studying biochemistry. It's the science of what keeps our bodies alive and functioning. I can't think of any better way to basically curate our own bodies than to understand the way the environment affects us and how the food we eat gives us nutrition and allows us to perform the tasks we do every day. I couldn't agree more. I remember when I first took biochemistry, it was a little frightening at first, but once it clicked, I felt like, oh my gosh, this answers all the why questions for the body. So I'm delighted to have a PhD biochemist on the show. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm curious to know next how you got interested in fungal issues. We focus a lot, I think, in nutritional sciences on antibiotics and antibiotic resistance, and we're curious about how our food has grown in relation to antibiotics. But the fungal and the whole fungicide issue, I don't think is as well explored. How did you become interested in it? Well, I think I took a different route than most people who study the fungi that affect our food. I was more interested in the fungi that affect our bodies. Um, I was more interested in disease fungi, which are very distinct from the ones that affect the produce in our grocery store. I looked at ways of creating antibiotics that might protect us from these virulent pathogens, uh, which are a very big problem today, especially in people who are recovering from surgeries. What I attempted to do was examine pesticides like fludoxanol to see if they could actually be adapted for human use. And what we discovered was it didn't work the way it was supposed to, and that got me interested in switching over from studying simply pathogens that were fungal to all fungal species. I've heard through the grapevine that fungal infections may be the source of our next pandemic. Have you heard the same? Well, it's hard to say, but it's true that fungi are something we have difficulty dealing with. They are a lot closer to us evolutionarily than bacteria, so antibiotics don't work on them. The medicines that work on fungi are often 
often as toxic to us as they are to the fungi themselves. Things that kill fungi almost invariably hurt us as well, which is why it's so hard to find things that kill them but are safe for us. So it's entirely possible that a species of fungi, a yeast perhaps, will start affecting us in ways that we can't prevent. Hmm. That's interesting. Well, I was curious to know what led to your curiosity about the particular fungicide that you mentioned, fludoxinol. Why this one in particular? Well, as I mentioned, we were examining fungicides to see if they could be adapted for human use, and this one was supposed to be extremely safe. And we were exploring the mechanism by which it safely killed fungicide. And no matter what we did, we weren't able to prove that it worked by the commonly accepted safe mechanism. And that raised a bit of an alarm flag. And my fiancé, who's very interested in science as well, began to question whether this was safe and suggested that we explore this aspect a little bit further. Uh, the more we looked into it, the more we became alarmed. It seemed there were many people, many other investigators, who had examined fludoxinol and decided that it was decidedly unsafe, that it was affecting human tissues, that it was affecting human health. Mm. Now, this particular fungicide I was interested to learn is used on quite a bit of foods in our ag industry. So we see it used on corn. We see it used on a lot of fruits and vegetables. I actually went to the Pesticide Action Network website where they've got a great resource called What's on My Food. And I thought, oh, summer fruits, they're so delicious. And I found peaches, you know, things that we eat and that I, as a dietitian, recommend that people eat more of. 47% of peaches in the quote-unquote conventional or chemical agriculture system have fludoxinol present. So that's a right. bit alarming, but there are also other pesticides present. And I know that's something that you're very interested in, you know, this idea that there we study, or I should say the industry looks at each individual pesticide, but never together with other pesticides that might be present on a particular food. You refer to that as synergy. Let's talk right. about that. Well, specifically for fludoxinol, it's very worrisome because it's applied in what's called a post-harvest drench. They literally cover the fruits with fludoxinol so that mold can't get a foothold. And it's very effective, and that's great for the producers and the sellers, but we basically end up eating all of that. There's not time for nature and the environment to rinse the material off of the food or for it to degrade in the environment. We consume it. And one of the things that I'm specifically worried about is that there is this capacity for synergy, that the fludoxinol may be damaging us in a way that leaves us vulnerable to other pesticides. And this is specifically frustrating to me because if you look at the way corporations deal with the EPA, they have to make statements along the lines of there is no synergy, that this is not a synergistic toxin, and that it will not cooperate with other toxins to kill things, and you don't have to worry about synergy being a problem. But as soon as they get their EPA regulatory license to use this material, their advertisers start crowing about how this toxin kills target organisms using synergy. It seems like they switch gears and turn 180 degrees, and suddenly synergy is what this poison is all about. And as I was saying earlier, if it kills fungi, it's likely to hurt us as well. And since 
specifically limnologists, people who study aquatic environments, have been examining fludoxal and found it to be toxic to a huge variety of species, bacteria, insects, plants, fish, protists, you name it. It's hard to believe that it's not potentially dangerous to human health as well. And if it's acting synergistically, this falls through the cracks in regulation. People don't look at that specific type of toxicity. And I think it's a huge oversight. It's something that needs to be dealt with directly and specifically. If two pesticides are often found together in our diet, they need to be examined together in toxicity assays. And to do anything less is very naive. Mm, I agree so much. And I'm assuming then that fludoxanol is water-soluble. Well, it isn't. That's actually an enormous problem. It's a waxy, greasy molecule, so it's almost impossible to wash off of food. Looking at the development notes of the producers who invented fludoxanol, it seemed they were trying to take its root molecule, something called pyelonitrin, which is made by a bacteria in the environment to discourage fungal activity. Uh, they took this molecule that breaks down very easily and they added fluoride and cyanide to it, and it became incredibly stable. Now fludoxanol doesn't break down. It sticks to the surface of the vegetables and fruit. It, it penetrates the tissues, and when we eat it, it goes into our bloodstream through the liver, basically, because it's a waxy, oily molecule. Molecules like that are often processed by the liver, and that's where it can do the most damage. You mentioned that it's toxic to aquatic species. If it's fat-soluble, how does it get into rivers and streams, lakes, and other bodies of water? Well, it's a waxy, oily molecule, but you've got to realize that everything is soluble to some degree. Sure. So what may well happen is that it binds to microscopic particles, and those particles are carried into the aqueous environment by uh, underwater flow. It's not all a perfect filter. Also, fludoxinol that's misted on crops could well waft over the surface of water bodies of water and adhere to dust and particles that sink into the water thereafter. Okay. So you mentioned that there was a soaking process to reduce fungi from growing on produce, for example. But right. I also right. read that it's used as a seed treatment on various crops, such as corn, soybeans, potatoes, cotton, etc. So you're introducing this toxin into the soil as well as ingesting it on the produce itself. That's true. That was its original design. And it's from all of its designs, it's incredibly effective. One of the problems is when it's introduced into the soil, they've discovered it's a class one toxin to earthworms. In fact, people oh. who studied it called it a supertoxin in the way it affected earthworms in the soil. And I can only presume that's a way of saying we wish there was a classification more deadly than class one. Wow. So it's definitely affecting organisms in the soil. It's not limited to the aquacy environment. And the tests that have been done in mammals, I think, may suffer from its hydrophobicity as well. I have difficulty believing that it's entering into the bloodstream of our experimental mammals in the way that they assure us it is. I think it's actually passing through them. It's mostly tested in rats. And rats don't have gallbladders, and gallbladders are absolutely required to absorb this molecule into the bloodstream. It seems to me more that they've created a pesticide that is not toxic to rat 
but could well be damaging to human beings. That's so interesting. So your research findings show that this particular fungicide acts on a sugar metabolizing enzyme common to all cells. So that means human cells. Tell me how that might affect our health. So the sugar processing molecule is called EPI. It's triosphosphate isomerase. I know that's a big word. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's very, very important, and it's been described as one of the most efficient molecules in the body. And it manages to chop sugars, which can actually be dangerous if they build up, as you know from diabetes. Uh, sugars that build up in your bloodstream can be dangerous. So TPI is a very important process, uh, part of the process of policing sugar and digesting it and turning it into energy. What we found is that the effect upon TPI, this enzyme, basically turned it into a toxin factory. It took some of the sugar and turned it into a oxidative stressor called methylglyoxal that could be very damaging to the body, and not only that, but uh, damaging in a way that's insidious because it mimics the effects of old age. And it's very hard to say how old age affects people differently. If someone gets sick, if they their body gets weak earlier than another person's, uh, who's to say they are just not affected by old age a little bit faster? It's very hard to quantify this damage. It's very hard to detect it. Right. Let me take one break because we're halfway through and just remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Dr. Tristan Brandhorst. He holds a PhD in biochemistry. He is a senior research scientist at the Klein Lab at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. And we are talking about his investigation into the toxicity of a commonly used fungicide called fludoxanol, and he is researching its mechanism of toxicity and effects on off-target organisms. You know, something I remember, Dr. Brandhorst, from, it was kind of an underlying theme of every Beyond Pesticide forum, which is that there's this thinking that these products affect target organisms only, right? That's what the industry that produces these and profits from these compounds would like us to believe. But in reality, many off-target organisms, including us, are indeed affected because sides mean poisons, as one of the physicians on our board always reminds us. So I want to talk about a particular form of damage on off-target organisms by this particular fungicide, and that is oxidative damage. How is this fungicide working in our bodies to produce oxidative damage? Well, that's a good question. We know a lot of pesticides cause oxidative damage. The one that we're looking at in specific, fludoxanol, we believe is creating a molecule that taxes the body's ability to fight that oxidative damage. We generate an antioxidative damage molecule in the liver called glutathione, and this is distributed by the liver to the rest of the body to protect it from oxidative damage. If you tax this molecule, if you deplete glutathione, the body is left vulnerable to all the other oxidative stresses out there, including all of the other pesticides out there. And this is one of the reasons why I think fludoxanol may be acting synergistically. It may not kill us itself. It may just damage our ability to fight other stresses, including Mm. other pesticides. And in the end, people will say it was this other stress that hurt you, that gave you a disease, that even killed you. But I believe it needs to be taken into account that there are molecules like fludoxanol that may be leaving us vulnerable 
to other stress. Right. You know, and we see this as a common mechanism with a lot of pesticides that are used. Even if it doesn't outright kill a living organism, it will weaken its defense mechanisms so that another opportunistic bacteria or virus can move in and successfully overtake the organism. So this is, yeah, this is really interesting. Now you've gotten funding for your research through the NIH, but there was some mention in a prior article that it's really hard to get funding to do this kind of research. Why is that? It's incredibly frustrating, and I'm not exactly sure why. Every time we've written a grant saying we want to prove that this commonly used pesticide is poisonous, we have been denied funding, we've lost funding. And I've noticed in particular that literally every group out there that has written an article on fluidoxinol uh, has written exactly one article on it. They uh, never wrote another article on that subject. And I've contacted these people, and I said, did your research not work out? And they said, no, it was looking great. It was very promising. We couldn't get money. Mm. So the problem comes in at the level of funding and the willingness of organizations like NIH, the NSA, the EPA, to direct money in, in the direction of finding out how to protect us from things that might have slipped through the cracks of our regulatory protective agencies. Right. Well, and I don't believe that pesticides have to be reinvestigated every so often. You know, once they're approved through the EPA, and we should probably remind our listeners that EPA approval does not equal safety, but once they get through the registration process, they don't have to be reevaluated. Is that correct? Uh, that's basically correct. They are occasionally set up for uh, commentary where people can make complaints. Every once in a while, they will open the door for people to make complaints and say, this is a problem. It's not easy to figure out when these times are. It's not easy to pay attention to these sorts of things. But I do encourage people who are worried about pesticides and their dangerous nature to explore these opportunities to respond to the EPA and to uh, lodge complaints. I know I am. I'm, I'm very interested now in tracking these opportunities so that we can make commentary and complaint and try and raise awareness. And I think it's really important for all of us to see researchers at universities not only doing the research, but also taking an advocacy role. I can't imagine sitting on top of this kind of information and not being an advocate, although I have heard some scientists say, nope, my role is simply to do the research and it's up to somebody else to do the advocacy work. What do you think about that? I think it's very tempting to take a hands-off approach and just go where the research funding is most available. These days, only 10 to 20% of grants are being funded. A lot of scientists are going begging for research funding. They can't get the work done that they think needs to be done. So a, a very small number of projects that people want to do are actually funded and the research performed. In my case, along with my fiance, we both agreed this was very important. We decided that we would work on this and focus on this and take an advocacy position in order to get down to the truth. I'm not saying everything I have theorized and postulated is true, but I want to find out all the details. I want to find out if this is the danger we think it might be. And I think it is not every scientist's opportunity to do this. They, money is too important. If, without funding, you can't do anything. 
Mm-hmm. In my particular position, I've got enough money to pursue this specific research and repeatedly send in grants until one is funded. And hopefully that will happen eventually. Until it does, though, my hands are tied. You literally cannot do research without a funding stream from the government. Mm, exactly. And I think, too, in some situations, researchers have had their hands slapped for stating concern about a particular product that might interfere with, say, the university's funding stream. Right. That can happen. I don't know if that's happening to me here. I was told when I started working against the interests of Syngenta, the company that makes most of the Fudaxel in the world, I was a little worried that something bad would happen to me. And I was assured that they weren't going to send assassins after me, but they might destroy my career. They might take my funding away. They might make sure that I never got funding again. And uh, so far, that prediction has has turned out to be true. It looks like I'm having more difficulty to get grants. It used to be every grant we wrote was funded. Now we've hit a brick wall, and we're looking for alternative sources of research funding. That's really frightening. And of course, Dr. Tyrone Hayes had a similar experience when he found that atrazine, commonly used on sugarcane and corn, in a lot of our water systems when he found that it was creating reproductive damage in frogs, Syngenta, of course, who produces atrazine, made his research life pretty difficult. Yes, his struggle is iconic. I don't know if we're quite at the same level, but we're dedicated to getting down to the truth. And there has been some evidence that fludoxinol does damage at the endocrine level in human bodies, which is a very big concern when it comes to pesticides. Some of these damages could end up being generational, meaning that children of the people who ate the food could be affected, and their grandchildren could end up being affected by the food they ate, which is a terrifying prospect. It needs to be investigated. It absolutely has to be brought to light. And in the meantime, we are told, I've actually heard dietitians say this, and it just drives me nuts. They'll say, oh, you know, you don't have to spend the extra money on organic But the truth of the matter is there is significantly less residue of pesticides. I mean, they're in the air, they're in our rainwater. So there might be some residue, but it is statistically significantly less on organic food. And this particular fungicide is not permitted in organic farming systems. So if we want to avoid these products, the way to do it is to purchase organic food and just realize that even if it's going to cost you more at the register, it will save you money in the long run in terms of your health and that of the health of our environment. I thought it was interesting. There was an article in E&E News in September of 2020 that says that you even said that you had been a pro-pesticide guy, but not so much anymore. What happened to you? A couple of experiences. One was I contracted lymphoma from use of the commonly used herbicide glyphosate in my own property. And this opened my eyes to the possibility that there were problems in oversight. It was my fiance who brought to my attention the difficulties with obtaining healthy and safe food. And as I said, I disagreed with her at first. I was very pro-pesticide. I felt that we were amply protected by our regulatory agencies But the arguments she made, her perspective, won me over. And as she encouraged me to look closer at the fluid axonal issue, which had come to light accidentally in our lab, I became more and more of a believer in her point of view that 
that organic food is very important and it needs to be made more available so that people can afford it. I think it's something that should be covered by food stamps. I think it should be something that should be promoted, especially for the health and welfare of expectant mothers, nursing mothers, and children. Right. The especially vulnerable populations where cells are rapidly dividing, that's when they are most vulnerable. One of the messages that the industry gives us is that, oh, you know, just wash it. And your research, if I'm understanding correctly, that this is a waxy substance. It's not going to be washed off easily. It's not going to be washed off easily. It's, It's almost impossible because it's oily and waxy, it can penetrate deep into the tissue of things like apples and grapes, berries, vegetables. You might get some luck. You might get half of it off by boiling, oh my pouring off the boiling water. But for most things, that's not an option. No. I personally won't touch a berry unless it's organic these days. But if I'm eating the whole of the vegetable, I won't touch it unless it's organic for my own health. And it's made an enormous difference in my day-to-day health, I have to say. Yeah, I'm the same way. I invest in organic food because of all of the reasons that you've cited. I'm especially concerned about peaches because of their fuzzy skin. It just seems like pesticides would just adhere to that kind of skin even more. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Well, we just have a couple of minutes left, Dr. Brandhorst, and I want to give some time to you to bring forth anything that we might not have covered that you want our listeners to know? As I think I mentioned earlier, the type of damage we think food oxanol is causing to our bodies is associated with oxidative stress. It's actually something a lot more rare called aldehydic stress. It creates a molecule called methylglyoxal that reacts with our body in a way that simulates the effects of old age. And this deteriorates our ability to recover. It deteriorates our ability to react in the immune system. It deteriorates our body in in uncountable ways. And it's also very hard to detect. It's hard to look at a cell and say this was poisoned when it just looks like it's the effects of natural old age. So my concern is that some of these pesticides may be aging us before our time and that people who are stunned to find out that they can't recover from a simple illness, from a simple injury when they're in their 40s and 50s, maybe in a different age when all the food was organic, would have recovered much more readily. And therefore, I believe it may be deteriorating our long-term quality of life in a way that really matters and would be important to people if they understood this. I want to thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Brandhorst. This has been a fascinating discussion I need to close because we're out of time, unfortunately, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Tristan Brandhorst. He holds a PhD in biochemistry and is a senior research scientist at the Klein Lab at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I will provide links to the Beyond Pesticide Forum where other people can listen to your excellent presentation there. I'll provide a link to the Pesticide Action Network's What's on My Food so they can see these kinds of synergies that you brought forth. And we'll provide a link to your work and some articles that have been published further explaining this particular fungicide's damage. So thank you so much again, and thank you for being my guest. Oh, no worries. It was a real pleasure and an honor to be here.